three mornings a week, we meet before breakfast for an early morning run. We spend most of our time planning and reflecting on what's happening in our classrooms. This has become our favorite professional development. So we figured, why not share these moments with you? Welcome to Math Before Breakfast. episode 58. I'm Tracy Prophet. I'm Ruth Urquiaga. And I'm Jay Prophet. And we are so excited to be joined today by Berkeley Everett. Hi, Berkeley. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you have ever been on the math Twitter, you probably have seen Berkeley's work. Um, and we have used a lot of his stuff in our classroom. I've recommended it to tons of teachers. Even just this week, I was like, oh, I got the thing for you. Found it. Um, he has created the site mathvisuals.wordpress.com. If you haven't been there, you should go there. But we are excited to talk to him um, tonight. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we have a, we have a ton of things that we want to talk about. So we're just going to jump right in. <laughs> um, so if you would tell us a little bit about yourself, tell us, you know, what you do now, kind of. We also like to hear pe about people's experience as a student and how that affects um, what you, you know, your your teacher role, too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm excited to be here, and um, I want to talk to you a little bit about your intro music, which I didn't get to hear on my end of this time. Oh, yes. But remind me if I, if I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So yeah, as a student, uh, I was lucky for the first uh, few years of my schooling to be taught by the same teacher who was my mom. So I was homeschooled. And cool. uh, so learning included a lot of play with Legos and exploration of different ideas. And I felt very free. Um, so I think that's always had an impact on who I am as an educator and what I expect learning experiences to feel like. Um, mm. And I think another important uh, moment for me uh, was my high school math experience. I had been getting a more traditional um, direct instruction. Um, here's the procedure. Uh, how well can you follow my directions sort of instruction. But when I got to, to high school, my parents uh, and I decided that I should check out this new class that was being piloted at my high school called CPM. Um, are you familiar with uh, college no. prep math? No. So it was a lot of group work and problem solving. So, so solving through context. And uh, one of the ones that I remember best was, uh, I think the, the, the story problem started off, you've just arrived um, at the scene of a murder, uh, and, and <laughs> your, your partner has taken the, the temperature of the body and is going to be monitoring how the temperature uh, decreases over time. Meanwhile, you just got this surveillance footage, um, and you're going to kind of track who was coming in and out of the building, and, and your job is to figure out who murdered uh, this 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 body. That's awesome. Um, which was, uh, of course, like linear movie equations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so again, that I sort of excited, um, uh, or it was such an exciting experience for me as a student to, to feel like I was solving real problems uh, and being presented with the problem first instead of the solution or pathway first. Awesome. That's really cool. And how, I mean, how long ago was that? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that was that was in the early uh, 2000s okay. yes yes I don't know the I guess the century right <laughs> for me I'm thinking about where I was as a teacher and how far away I was from let's give them a problem to solve and let them learn from that yeah you know yeah it was there I that's just not what I was doing in my classroom I don't know that's really cool yeah. And it was interesting that that class uh, or those classes, it was a series of classes I had it for three years, um, were 
presented as math classes for kids who were having trouble in math class. Um, but the description sounded so much more fun than a regular math class. Like, hey, we're going to solve real problems. You're going to see how math is connected to your real life. I was like, yes, please. Like, that's shouldn't that be the description for all math classes? Yeah. Awesome. Wow. Can you tell us a little bit about your role now? Yeah. So um, I had a short career as a jazz pianist. Um, I studied <gasps> jazz. No way. <laughs> Jay, Jay Prophet said there's a there's a. I was like, dang, there's a guy named Berkeley Everett that was a jazz pianist. And he spells his name the same way. This is crazy. <laughs> what? <laughs> that <was> me. <laughs> no way. That me. I was going to ask that question later, so that's oh. great. Whoa. Yeah, I, I call that my uh, applied math career that I had before becoming a math educator. Um, and I, I definitely believe that that experience um, has led to me believing that math should be uh, creative and flexible and more artistic. Yeah. And Jay, you have experience as a musician or music educator as well. Yeah, I, I went to I went to college to be uh, you know I have a I was a major a music major a music education major and taught chorus for several years. Nice, nice. That's so, so cool. I'm sure you can see the connections as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And you have an, another art form, right? You're a photographer now. I yes, I I am a, a photographer. I, I my specialty is um, sports photography. I shoot a lot of uh, running races. Oh, nice. Awesome. All right. You're up next. Oh, I'm up next. I get questions this week. Yeah. (laughs) So um, tell us the story, I guess, behind your website, how you, you know, what caused you to, you know, put it together? You know, did you, has it been like this the whole time? Have you, you know, kind of had iterations of it along the way? Yes. So after, um, after, my career in jazz piano, I realized that teaching was a better fit for me. So I was teaching first grade uh, for many years in Brooklyn. And I was lucky enough to work with um, very collaborative staff. I had coaching every single week. So I had a teacher coming in and helping me notice what kind of questions I was asking and whether or not I was doing the work, um, whether or not I was asking my students to do the work, um, which was really great. And I've, it helped me transition slowly, and I feel like it's it's going to be a continual journey for the rest of my life, away from being a great explainer to being somebody who puts kids in a place um, to build their own understanding and to connect with what they already know. Um, but I I had this inkling or I was feeling that um, that visuals would be a better way to put kids into a position to to notice um, and make connections between some of the big math ideas, and I think that was probably because. Um, the CPM math class that I had had in high school had a lot of visuals. Um, anytime I saw something in the textbooks um, that I had used in, in my pedagogy training, anytime something was visual, I, I felt like I could, could instantly understand it um, or have a, a much more concrete conversation with somebody else about it. So I wanted to create that uh, for my students. Um, and the first visual that I remember creating with PowerPoint uh, which back in this time uh, did not have the cool new morph feature, which <laughs> helps kind of make the animation really smooth and uh, uh, and elegant. Um, I, I was trying to create a visual where uh, you would see the counting sequence. So you'd see the, the number uh, abstractly written along with the place value uh, cubes building up. And then you'd actually see them coming together to create that, that, that long or that rod. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I created that and I played it for my students um, and they were, I mean, they were able to make so many connections and notice so many things about the counting sequence and about place value itself. And I didn't have to do any explaining. 
Um, and that was kind of what inspired me to start putting those things together on a website. And it wasn't until I started using Keynote, um, and I'll say a shout out to Kyle Pierce, who who told me, hey, you got to switch over to Keynote, um, <laughs> which has a great um, slide transition feature that anybody can use. It's, it, it takes you 20 seconds to learn. And once you once you do it, you, your mind will be blown and you will want to create your own animations too. Um, I, I started creating a bunch of visuals that I was using in my class and I decided to just um, share online as well. Awesome. Cool. And I have used Keynote and they had to, you're right, they have some of those that you don't have to make the animation. Like one slide you have it here, the next slide you have it there and it it figures out how to move it across the slide nice and smooth. Yeah. And I and I can say because I've seen it, but I haven't actually watched it. That um, for anybody who's interested, there is a link on his website that where you can learn how to do it. Yep. Right. Yes. Oh, cool. So you talked a little bit about what you do now, and I'm curious. You've got all of these visuals out there for teachers to use. Is there a school that you specifically work for? You said kind of across Los Angeles, like. I don't know. Do are there is there a school where there's a teacher like well, we should call Berkeley and he should make this visual for us or <laughs> do you just kind of come up with these or do people how do you know which ones you need next? I just feel like your variety is so big. Yes, they. I would say that that website is probably uh, about the best way to describe it is that that is my journey through relearning elementary math. Hmm. So. It, it, it does span K-5 because I'm trying to relearn K-5, and there's a lot more K-2 to visuals there uh, right now. Um, but I've been learning a lot more 3-5 content, a lot more 6-8 content uh, lately. So anytime I'm trying to put the pieces together, I, I don't feel like I fully understand it until I've created a visual. Hmm. And part of the challenge for me, I think, is figuring out how those visuals work in the classroom. Because I've, I've and one of the great things about Twitter is you can get all all kinds of free feedback from, you know, people whose books you have. Right. Um, and sometimes that feedback, it can, you know, it, it, at first, I think I put stuff out there. I was excited to get feedback. And then I, I got some negative or I would maybe I was like constructive feedback from some people I really, really respect. And it was it was hard at first to take that feedback, but it really helped push my thinking about how visuals should be used and maybe how they shouldn't be used. And Part of the the problem, I think, with some of the visuals on my website is that they show people how to think. So I think I, I've kind of started distinguishing b- between the two types of visuals I have. Some are are like a like the the visual I described earlier, where you see the counting sequence. The kids uh, can notice and make connections on their own. It's not showing them what to think. It's 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 more of a notice and wonder, um, or what's the same and what's different. Uh, but I think some visuals that I created for myself and to just better understand how certain strategies and models were connected um, are demonstrating how to use a particular strategy, which can make it look like um, this is the way that you're supposed to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. So if there was, I don't know, advice from Berkeley on when to use a visual, you might even just classify them because you might use some visuals at the beginning and some visuals as a this is the algorithm that you know now, right? Because mm-hmm. we've done that discovery. And so this is what it looks like. Yes. Right. After it has been introduced from a student, right? After that's a, attributed to a student in the class, then maybe showing that and say, hey, whose strategy does this look like? And then still puts the ownership on the students. Hmm. Oh, that's good. I also think they're useful to help teachers understand 
what's going on because they've there's so many times that teacher we as teachers have learned an algorithm and being able to see it happen is you know if nothing else helps us get it I think you're seeing that more as you're a coaching now Mm -hmm. because sometimes you don't realize as an educator that you understand it better than the educator next door who's teaching the exact same thing and so (sighs) you know we're gonna teach this algorithm you know let's take it to double digit subtraction with regrouping but then you say well let's let them investigate with base 10 rods and it's it's hard some teachers are like well i know you just cross it out and put a one in front of it you know but they don't mm-hmm. really understand why no fault of their own yeah. but i feel like that's a your visuals are a good place for them to start to be able to have those moments maybe even quietly they don't need to tell you know <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. And if nothing else, I'd love to inspire people to create their own visuals, whether that's on pencil and paper, whether that's on the computer. Um, and it's it's really, it, it, that's that's how we get this this work done, and that's how we improve as educators. Yeah, I have. I was. I may talk about this later because it's so on my mind. But I've been working with a teacher all week on working towards. Um, like the area model for multiplication of larger numbers. And she just so doesn't want to just hand them an algorithm. She's working really hard to help them discover it. And I was thinking about, oh, that's a good idea that if now she did have kids today who had they I'm just going to go ahead and explain what was happening because it was real cool. y'all. <laughs> um, I at the dollar store, I got um, this page of gym stickers that um, were it was 18 an array of 18 by 12. And gym, like gym, like, yeah, like, like little stones. stones yeah. Okay. And so they're all stuck to the paper, but they're 3D because they're gyms. And every pair of kids had a page that was 18 by 12. And she had been, I had given her your, I don't even know what you call it, but where there's like a whole bunch of arrays, um, like three times seven, three times, and then they have to divide it up. You know, what's mm-hmm. that called on your site? I forget. I think it's multiplication relationships or something. Yeah, something like that. So (laughs) I had given her that and they had been practicing it, but I had her practice that with with facts the day before. So they practiced breaking up three times seven or seven times nine or whatever, a bunch of different ways. And so then they were told to kind of try to do the same thing with this big, huge array to them. And um, they were given... uh, coffee stirs to be like the divisions so they were told to break it into smaller groups that they could figure out and most groups were um cutting it down the middle and down the middle so they they were cutting the 12 the factor the 12 side into six and six and then the 18 side into nine and nine and so they had four boxes that were four rectangles that were nine times six right and they could kind of figure that out they were going different ways but then one group did split it into the tens and the ones and yes you can do it all the ways but we all know that that's going to end up being the most efficient way so now I'm thinking if there doesn't already exist one like that would be the perfect time okay here's this team that broke it into tens and ones let's see if let's watch it happen on like on the screen too you know she okay i have to tell you what the next part is i'm so sorry because <laughs> also at the dollar store um i have to try to explain this well there are you know like if you're in a kid's gym or something there are those foam mats that interlock um, oh yeah look like puzzle pieces yeah. yeah so they can like cover the whole floor somewhere right. like a cheap way to make a kid's floor well they had small ones so the 
each piece was probably like three by three inches and they came in a set of nine in a thing. So I bought like 24 of them. And so she's made this array. I'm holding up my hands. You can't see it if you're listening to this podcast, but um, you know, it's several feet by several feet and it's, it's going to be out on the carpet and tomorrow they're going to try, okay, those kids over there that did breaking it into the tens and the ones, they're going to actually like break off the pieces on this edge that are, you know, the extra and break off this. So they'll have a hundred, a 10 by 10 square, and then the tens row and the tens row and the little smaller one at the bottom. Did anybody pat, follow that? Yes. <laughs> I did. Yes. All, yes. all my hand motions. Yes. But so anyway. I don't, I don't know where I started. Oh, that just that it would be cool to have a visual. So do you have one? Do you know? <laughs> or well, should I make that tonight? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you're talking about, well, I, I have been doing a little of my own learning around the associative property and the distributive properties. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a visual in Marion Small's new book that has really been blowing my mind. Okay. And I'm not sure uh, fully what I think about it, but okay. my, my current theory is that so she describes the um, the distributive property as multiplying in, in parts okay and she has a an array with some some objects that have been broken up like you described um, but only broken up horizontally okay um, and then the equation that matches is written below it um, the next principle of multiplication that she has listed is the associative property and it says you can multiply in parts um, and and you uh, you can break them up uh, by factors or something like that. And when you look at the visuals, and she, again, a similar visual and only um, sliced uh, horizontally, mm-hmm. uh, but this time into two equal groups. Okay. Um, and it's a two-dimensional object. Um, so now you have two groups of three by six or something like that, mm-hmm. where before you had, um, I guess, what would that have been? Uh, four by... Uh, six by 12? I just confused myself. (laughs) (laughs) See, this is is where it's helpful to point to an actual visual. The original is 12 by 18 (laughs) is what you're talking about. Yeah, but he said two groups of two by six the second time. Two by six. So I guess four by six. Four by six, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So in looking at the two pictures that she has in her book, I I was like, wow, they look, the distributive property and the associative property look very similar. You're, You're slicing it up. The difference is just that with the distributive property, you don't have to make, you don't have to slice it into equal groups. Whereas if you do it with the associative property, you're, you're slicing it in a way where it results in equal arrays or equal groups. I don't know. Is that true? I Okay. So my sixth grade brain is like f- following you. And I guess, but you're using a visual and you don't have digits for me to like... S- you know, change the groupings, but I think I follow you. I'm gonna do I'm some not more sure investigating. I'm yet, but... I think if I saw Marion Small's visual, well, that there, would help there's you. your assignment for this week. Yeah, <laughs> we gotta get that book. We've been thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so, what's the title of that book? Um, it's a very long title that I'm probably gonna get partially wrong. It's um, understanding the math we teach and how to teach it. Oh, I think. Okay. We got the um, like the preview chapter in the mail. Did you get that chapter? We it's been sitting beside the bed for a long time. Yeah. Like I read a, that preview you, chapter might have it because I think that's oh. introduction to the operations or something. Okay, all right. So <laughs> well, on your way out today, Ruth, I'll show you. <laughs> awesome, Jay's. Are you um, confirming something over there? I was just trying to look it up real quick. But. Okay. Oh. 
All right. Did you have something you wanted to say about that? I don't think so, but I am... I properties like I want to be able to teach them more than just in this unit I want to be able to just say look at this and that's that's exactly what you were doing with you know that's the associative I had a student today who was just standing there we're doing order of operations and he had to do 32 divided by two and he's just standing and I'm like so tell me about what's going on in your head what are you trying to do and he's like I'm trying to do long division and I was like well let's break up 32 let's make just two numbers that make 32. What's an easy number? What do you know half of? And he, he just went right to 20. I'm like, yeah. Oh, that's good. So we did 20 and 12. And then I showed him the long division bar. And so I was like half of 20 and half of 12. And if you put those together and he's like, wait, it's 16. And I'm like, Kaden, that's how <laughs> Mrs. E does division in her head all day long. <laughs> and that's the distributive property. And he's like, it's the mm-hmm. what? I'm like, And then it was so funny because now we're in class. Like, that was before school. So now we're in class, and he's got 30 times 2 on his paper. And he calls me over, and he's like, Missy, tell me what you did today. What what was that? (laughs) Well, that was when you were trying to find half of it. But now you're just doubling it. So can you do 30 plus 30? And he's like, oh, yeah, I don't need your trick for that. (laughs) You and your math tricks. Yeah. So we have some work to do as to whether you're multiplying or dividing. But... Yeah. And it is called Understanding the Math We Teach and How to Teach It. Good. Thanks. Okay. He confirms everything on the right. Just so you know, so people don't write down the wrong thing. (laughs) Right. So I was wondering, um, looking through on your website, some of the the visuals and they're all silent. Is that Mm -hmm. on purpose that there's no there's no music, there's no anything in the background? I was watching the one uh, with lemons and limes the other day. And as you, sh- they get shoved up and together, and then they get pulled back and apart. And the whole time, there's there's no sound. It's just silent limes and lemons going around. Yes, yes. So not uh, not for a lack of trying. Um, well, I guess I haven't tried very hard, but I just haven't had time. And uh, I think one of the accidental benefits of that, when I was using it in my classroom, kids would often add their own sound effects. Yeah. So you'd hear like zoop, or they would, you know, it's just natural for first yeah. graders, especially, to to add sound effects. Um, so I definitely had some some sound effects in my mind when I was creating right. some of them, but it, it worked out. Yeah, I was I was thinking I used to work in schools. You know, one of my many jobs was troubleshooting when classroom technology didn't work, and mm-hmm. I can remember many times, hey, we don't hear any sound, or the sound's too soft, or I can't hear what he's saying, and Part of me, the music part of me, wants to hear some music or something. But then that that technology troubleshooter side says, "Whew, there's nothing that you can't hear. There's nothing that you're missing yeah. if, you, if huh. you're if you're not listening." So I saw it both ways. I was just wondering if there was a a, so, a reason or plan behind that. I just think about if you're looking at this visual as an introduction to this new skill, and you're noticing and wondering, you're not distracted. Like you're noticing and wondering is really on what's happening in the picture and not the mute. That's a higher pitch sound that came first. Yeah. I'm Mm -hmm. not a music person and I, that doesn't affect me, but I feel like it could be distracting. Yeah. Not that it's, I would say you are a music person. You just don't know it yet. Just like when people say they're not a math person. Burn. So I think when I say (laughs) I'm not a a music person, (laughs) (laughs) no burn, no burn, no burn. Okay. Not a burn, not a burn. (laughs) I'm not like, I, 
it doesn't touch me and move me and make me remember something. Where my husband, he can, the day that my son was born, he knows the song that was playing on the radio. Your husband's not normal in that way. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of stuff is, so that makes me feel like I'm not a music person because... You know, he's like, do you know this song? It was at our wedding. Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe it would be a distraction. Yeah. yeah. But. Could be. But I, I think people's intonation and the way that they speak is musical and lyrical. Yeah. And has a melodic aspect to it that you that you interpret and that you use to your advantage when you're talking to your students. Hmm. Ruth also does sing to her students. <laughs> I haven't done that in a long time. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. No. All right. Um, so you you may or may not want to answer this, so feel free to not. But, you know, um, when you compare your what you put out there on the Internet to other people, I find it interesting that there's nothing for sale on your website. Everything's free. And I can't tell you the number of times that I have appreciated that as an educator. Like, oh, it's exactly here and exactly what I need. Um, and I just, you know, we're just curious about that, about that choice and whatever you want to tell us about that. Yeah. Well, and in the same way that the website started off as a catalog of my thinking and still is really uh, and my own learning. Um, I think it, it it feels much safer to put something out there that I'm not charging for. Um, I think, you know, what do they say? Um, perfect is the enemy of good enough, right? If I, if I feel like I was uh, selling something that I'm still using as my own learning tool, um, I would be less likely to put it out there. Hmm. I'd be less likely to get feedback. Um, I think, you know, when you sell something to somebody, somebody thinks it's packaged and complete. Um, but I appreciate especially, I mean, I don't have to con- uh, convert you on Twitter. Um, when I put something out there, I get so much uh, uh, useful feedback and a dialogue um, that just doesn't exist when there's that sort of power dynamic created from a paid resource. Yeah. So, and I'm lucky. I'm lucky to have been working uh, in jobs that I love, and so it's not something that I need to do. Awesome. That's yep. a good answer. Yeah. I think we sort of started this whole process of podcasting in the same way that just honestly for it to be a record of how we were changing our teaching last year that was like we sure as heck can't write a blog because we would never we would never produce it but we can talk about it like we do you know already Mm -hmm. so and and there's lots of times where I mean I've already said things that I've like my thinking has already changed since I said it you know before Mm -hmm. so I like that record sometimes it's a little scary to put your unfinished ideas out there you know yeah but that's one of the things i love about your podcast is you're you're letting people see what that conversation sounds like what it could sound like with a colleague right yeah if if you're at a school and you don't have somebody to have this kind of conversation with find somebody yeah Uh, whether it's at your school site whether it's online right it's and these it validates the process which is the most important part right it's not where you're at it's where you're going and that's what what your conversation is so we appreciate you putting it out there thank you (laughs) thanks okay so we're kind of going to move into kind of some of the questions i noticed you put one of these on twitter not too long ago and i guess we had this conversation with jay when jay was the one who was like wait a minute if you know what the answer is why do you have to use this strategy and so we, I think the example we were talking about was making a 10 if you're going to solve 7 plus 5. And for me, as a sixth grade teacher, I'm 
I'm there. Like, what kind of strategies am I going to give to you for order of operations if 70% of my class comes and already knows the steps that you follow and why you follow them? Like, where do you decide that you need a strategy or you don't need a strategy? And when do you teach the algorithm? Do you teach the algorithm? <laughs> that was a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of yeah. questions. So you can just pick any of those in there <laughs> and answer yeah. one. Well, I, I have a follow-up. Like, what when you say that they know the steps, which, which steps are you talking about? So last year's teacher gave them, you do groupings, you do exponents, you multiply, divide left to right, and you add, subtract left to right. Um, I even found out today that she took apart an order of operation problem. And when I say take it apart, like, um, I'm going to write this down so I can speak correctly 16 minus 3 times 2 and the student was like well you could write that as all addition and um, she said 16 plus negative 3 what what did she say times negative no plus another negative 3 which is really 16 minus 6 which is really order of operations, which is why you multiply before you add and subtract because every multiplication problem is repeated addition. Hmm. She had a really solid understanding of what your, that your means. Students said yeah. That? Wow, I, that's more solid of understanding than I have of order of operations. <laughs> I mean, she, you know, and so if you, I don't know, two times three plus four times two, well, that's. Two groups of three, so three plus three plus four groups of two plus two plus two plus two plus two. And now you have an addition problem that equals the same thing because you know what the multiplication works for. So, you know, and then I have the student who doesn't know. Mm -hmm. And so where do you teach that algorithm and what, how do you group them? How do I challenge the student? Right. So you're talking about how do you help kids see the connection between multiplication and addition in the context of the order of operations? Exactly. Why do we have the order of operations and why do we do it that way? Mm-hmm. You know, because I don't I don't think that we would call that a math convention. We've used that word before where this is just something that we do in math. I think that multiplication and division comes before addition and subtraction for this reason, because multiplication and division can be written as repeated addition, repeated subtraction. Hmm. So the question that, that pops into my mind is, like, what happens when you get fractions? Right. Or when the fraction is the, is the multiplier? Oh. Like... What would it be if it was 16 minus one-third times two? All right, so we have to make this into an addition problem, right? So this would be 16 plus negative one-third. And I'm going to do negative one-third twice, so plus mm. a negative one-third. Mm-hmm. But that's two groups of one-third. It's backwards. So you used your commutative property there, right? Yes. So then, <laughs> instead of so figuring out 16... a third of two, is that what you're saying? Okay. Well, yeah. What if it? So what if it was negative uh, oh one third and negative <laughs> one half? Right. 
I wonder though if that's that comes after what you're describing, I think, right? Because oh, for sure. If you're talking about students coming in and making that connection between the multiplication and addition. I'm coming yes. She understood that you could rewrite a whole entire order of operation problem with multiplication and addition as just addition. Mm-hmm. And if I gave you a whole problem of just addition, wouldn't you use the commutative property and group all of those addings together? Like I have a three here and a three here and a three here and three here, and that's three times four hmm. to create something that is a little simpler to calculate. Yeah. Right, right. A question I've been asking myself recently is like, how do we convince students that anything new that we're that we're learning empowers them in some way? And I feel like what you're describing is a reason why multiplication is more efficient and effective in that in that case. If you're the three plus three plus three plus three plus three, kids are that's as I, I know Dan Meyer uses that uh, analogy or the metaphor of the headache and the aspirin. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorites. That, like, that's a perfect headache, and multiplication is a perfect aspirin in that moment. Yeah. So I say we go back to seven plus five because I hear you have a lot to a lot you've been thinking about that. <laughs> Ruth got us uh, deep in the woods there. <laughs> yeah, you saying me back to what yeah, I've been thinking about. Yeah, yeah. Tell us some more five. about yeah. the. <laughs> yeah, what you've been thinking about um, strategies and making ten yeah. and all that. Yeah, and I think uh, visuals have been my entry point uh, into uh, mathematics and, and really loving teaching mathematics. But I think um, one of the things that I love the most now is fluency. So the you, you might be familiar with the math flips, uh, which are these flashcards that are almost like a problem string mm-hmm. um, uh, reduced to a flashcard. So on the front, you have uh, problem A, which is sort of a a problem that leads into the problem that's on the backside. So problem on the front and a related problem on the back. And um, so if seven plus five was the problem that was on the back of the flashcard, what problem would you want kids to solve first? Ooh, let's let Jay Profit answer. What? Oh, he wasn't ready. <laughs> what do you mean? Like how I would make that into a 10? What would be the problem you would want them to do before that that would help them get ready for seven plus five? They're like two related problems. Some problem I think about first, and then they can use that to solve seven plus five. I'm sorry, I put you on the spot. I don't understand what you're asking. Me. Okay, I think <laughs> I think seven plus three is what I would put on the front. Oh, so that's what I just said to get to ten. Yeah. So yeah, okay, seven plus three shows See, them to get to ten. I, what were you thinking? Five plus five. Oh, what were you thinking? Yeah, one of those. <laughs> or, or, Good answer. Or uh, what about uh, six plus six? You put six plus six on there. Oh, yeah. Because oh, you're like you shifting one. From the one. Other. Oh, that's what is that called? Multiplication. Com- that oh. would be like using your doubles uh, plus or minus two, I guess, in that case. Okay. But so what's it the, called? What I-, I remember from your episode, uh, Jay, you had a great question of like, if I can... If I can count on to solve seven plus five right. and I get the correct answer and I get it in a reasonable amount of time, and we know that kids can count on very quickly, um, why why ask them or nudge them to use strategies? And I think that's 
a great question. Yeah. And it's one of those um, hurdles um, that I know I hear middle school teachers talk about, high school teachers talk about, oh, they're still counting on their fingers. And so it's like, what can we do in first grade, second grade, these younger grades to get kids to use something that will last, I guess, uh, sort of connect to other types of learning. So when I think about the counting strategy, there's a lot of elements going into it. They might say seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, and put up a finger as they count. Um, but I know from my experience with first grade, there's a lot of room for error. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just starting on the run, wrong number, saying the wrong number at the end, um, getting confused which problem you're solving because you're keeping track of multiple things. You're counting on your fingers and you're counting out loud, but the number you're saying out loud is different than the number that's on your fingers. Mm -hmm. Right. So you can learn. It's a it's it's a it's a cool procedure uh, or strategy that you can learn. Maybe I wouldn't call it a procedure. It is a strategy, if you know it with understanding. Um, and there's some cool things that a kid is doing in their mind when they're solving that. I mean, they they've realized that they don't have to represent or count every single number in that problem. So there is this level, it's like a, a level of abstraction that's happening um, and, and sophistication, right? They're exploring an, a, a better way. Um, but then if we want it to connect to the, the properties of operations, right? If we want them to de be able to decompose numbers and put them together in a way that's more efficient for them, that'll work better when they're, when they're solving, uh, you know, 47 plus five. Um, just, it, I think that the, those more sophisticated strategies are easier to connect to later learning. Right. Like, I think I was saying the other, I don't remember exactly what I said in that episode, but like in my brain, there are certain addition or subtraction things that are just automatic for me. Like seven plus five is 12, you know, say that's one of them. And so I don't need a strategy for seven plus five, but mm -hmm. down the road, if I have like 47 plus 35 or 107 plus 325, being able to, the strategy will help when that's when it's not as simple of a, of a problem but still a similar thing yes you made me think about like i to get to seven plus five being automatic for you did you pass through counting on into decomposing and and making 10 and then, I mean, there's no way that you're going to actually be able to remember and know, right? To oh, get to 12. Well, of course I remember what I did when <laughs> I was seven. In third grade. Um, or, I think it was know. just memorization of over and over realizing, like, that's that's not one of them. One of them is eight plus five is 13. That's one that is that I know is automatic in my head. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's just memorization from doing it over and over and over. I don't remember how my brain broke it down to figure it out originally, but that's it's just a, a memorized fact. But as One, a sixth something that grade, was helpful. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, as a sixth grade teacher, watching students and doing those math running records, mm -hmm. there are just random sets, like you said. Mm -hmm. Today, I was helping a student who was doing two times six, and I watched him two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, and then two times seven, two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen, then seven times six, forty-two. What? <laughs> what and in so the I world? was like, "Tell me about that," and he's like. Well, I never learned to count by sevens, so I just had to memorize that. Wow. But because he had that count by twos, that's what he went to every time. And we did two times six, and then we did 12 divided by two just in these different order of operation problems. And he went there every time. And then, like, the fourth problem had another two times six in it. And he was like, wait, that's the 12 one. 
Like, <laughs> finally. Like, exactly. Like <laughs> The 12 one. I don't know. It was just, but I think you're right. I think they're, well, and he said it to me today. He was like, well, I just know that one. Hmm. You had something yeah. you were going to add. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was, I was going to say that um, everything is, uh, when we're talking about those, uh, they're called lots of different things, I guess. Derived facts is what I like to call them. Mm-hmm. If you know, you know, if you know. Um, six plus five is 11 then seven plus five you're just thinking oh it's just one more from yeah. the thing that I already know but it's based on something that you already know um, either you've figured it out or you've committed it to memory um, and when I say committed to memory I don't mean the act of memorization but that it because I feel like um, and, and a lot of people have influenced my thinking on this on Twitter um, that memory that memorization is a byproduct of learning through meaningful context and hmm. ex- lots of experiences that include visuals. So you get to know that six plus five is 11 because you've seen it on the tens frame so many times, the wreck and wreck, you just, you see five and five and one more. Like you, you, you did, had all those experiences with six plus five and now you can use that to figure out seven plus five. And I'm wondering, Jay, did you do the same thing? Did you do the same thing with eight plus five? Was that an anchor fact for you? Um. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't consciously think of moving that way. Um, there are probably some that, that may work that way that I can't think of right now, but it's not, it wasn't like, Oh, I know eight times five. And so if there's one more here, then it's one more, then the answer is going to be one more. Um, it was more being able to move back and forth, you know, addition and subtraction, both, both ways. Mm-hmm. And it was just like a, a an easy it was just, you know, an easy cycle of numbers that I could move between. Um, I probably did that, what you're what you're talking about, but it's not something I have consciously realized I'm doing. Yeah. Well, and so you have these connections that make it easier to access that, that yeah. memory. Right. right. So I completely agree with you, and that's what I'm trying to talk to teachers all day, every day about. Um, but then you come across people, unfortunately, who are still like, well, I just had to memorize them when I grew up, you know, like they, they, they're like, I'm perfectly fine. Cause I, and I didn't see it 20 different ways. You know, yeah. I, I don't, I still don't know what to say to those people. <laughs> well, they had yeah. to learn it somehow to memorize it. Yeah. They'll tell you, they just memorized it. Like, well, they'll tell you that. But... <laughs> right. Well, we don't remember learning how to read. Either. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good comeback. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I try not to have too many comebacks. It's, uh, so my, <laughs> my role now is as a facilitator and as a coach. So I work for the UCLA Math Project and um, I, I go into schools and I, because my role is so zoomed out, I don't have a lot of, um, I don't have as many follow-up opportunities with teachers as I would like. Mm. And so I've, I've learned how to, to not have comebacks, to not uh, get into the weeds about what I believe versus what they believe, but just hear where they're at and try and help them take the next step. Yeah. The comebacks. And I find, yeah. I was gonna say the comebacks definitely have a, a audience in which they work better than others. Yeah. People, you know, <laughs> right, right. And I, so I've been loving the book, uh, math fact fluency, mm-hmm. which I think, uh, you, I heard you talk about. Yes. Yeah. Um, we read that one. The, and being able to break down the different components of fluency. And so often my question is, well, which part of fluency are they missing? Is it the accuracy, the efficiency, um, or the, what's the flexibility, flexibility? Yeah. Yep. Accuracy, efficiency, or flexibility, which part do you feel like the kids are struggling with? And then the conversation becomes much more productive. And it's always hard to have that conversation when the kids aren't there, you know, so it's so much easier to actually be able to talk about it and then actually 
uh, work with a student immediately after. Cool. How about you, Tracy? What's what is your? What's my comeback? Um, yeah, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, ask the question again, because <laughs> I misinterpreted the question. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> you could call it a comeback, or how do you continue that conversation with people? Um, I think I. one way that I've tried is just showing them examples of, like, trying to help them even understand what efficiency means in this context. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I might have talked about it before, but I was... I wanted um, the teachers to see with subtraction that one of the pretty much the only strategy that a whole lot of students have is taking away with their fingers, putting them down, you know, variations Mm -hmm. of that. But basically like nine minus seven, they're going to go eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. Um, And that was my like my theory or my hypothesis that that's what most of our students were doing. And I got my camera out and called kids in the hall these are fourth graders and I said hey can you I'm gonna give you a problem to solve can you show me how you solve it and over and over and over and over they did you know and that was kind of like my proof I guess to the teachers that like we haven't taught them to be efficient or flexible because every single person thinks this is the only way to do it starting with all Mm -hmm. your nine fingers up and putting down so that that was eye-opening to the to the teachers. And then finally, there was one kid who took him longer, you know, but he finally did say seven, eight, nine, and go up from there and say it's two. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess my strategy right now has been pointing out really obvious examples of a lack of efficiency mm-hmm. and flexibility. Yeah. yeah. It's always helpful when the conversation is tangible. Yeah. We talk about actual students and actual situations. Yeah. Yeah. You're making me think of um, Sarah Vanderwerf's definition of math, which is that math is the study of patterns. And she says mathematicians uh, notice patterns, describe patterns, and generalize patterns. And that's a question I also sometimes ask is which, what's the pattern here that you want them to notice, describe, and generalize? Hmm. And for counting on, it is usually, I hear it described as more of a procedure. Well, first you take the larger number. But is that coming from the teacher or is that actually, do, do the students have ownership over that idea? And that, that is an important thing to notice. And then what's, what is happening when you're counting on? Um, can you see what that looks like in, on the number line? Can you see, can you visualize it in different ways? And then we start talking more about patterns. Yeah. It, it, has, it has been hard. Like, that's one of the things that I've, I've even struggled because not having taught primary, but trying to get primary teachers to use that counting on strategy for subtraction has kind of blown my mind a little bit. Like, you know, a teacher was like, well, I'm, I'm doing addition, but how's the subtraction? Like we've had that, that deep (laughs) conversation. Um, I I have to admit, I'm still wrapping my brain around how to, how to visualize it, you know? Right. (laughs) Yeah. Imagine. (laughs) On our equations, I think teachers are viewing math. Um, what's the, the curse of knowledge, right? You don't realize all the things that you know and have generalized. So when adults are looking at a subtraction equation or an addition equation, thinking subtraction, they're, they're not realizing that they're moving between a lot of important math ideas. Mm-hmm. And a big uh, thing that I, you know, how, when I started teaching first grade was to learn that there's different kinds of subtraction. Um, like, are, you, are we separating or are we taking away? And 
if there's an action in the story problem versus no action, that's going to influence how the kids approach it and think about it. Whereas adults will just say, oh, those are all subtraction problems. Mm-hmm. Um, even if the action in the story is implying addition. So it's a whole, it's a whole nother world. Like kids and adults think so differently and it, and it is hard to get into the kid's mind. Um, but that's why I love the different trajectories that help us understand how kids generally move through the different types of strategies. Yeah. And then comparing too as subtraction. Well, and mm-hmm. I was thinking the distance between. So mm-hmm. when you show a sixth grader the difference between negative three and three, and they're seeing six, that's really hard to do counting on or counting, you know, like for them to be able to see that this is on a number line and it's there. And if they have in their primary grade been exposed to the number line, remember when you did seven minus five and there was two spaces between, well, now you're doing three minus negative three and look how many spaces are between. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's, mind-blowing for so many students but if they've never seen whole number subtraction that way then it's they don't have anything to connect it to right boom and and when i think about what you're saying the six is the six inside of the nine is the six separate from the nine and and then we're adding to the six to catch up with the nine where like how do they how do they fit together and what's the relationship and i think for adults we, we go right to the abstract we think about it abstractly and for kids it's so much easier and actually probably for us too to think about it in context that if, if you have six candies and I have nine candies, um, those are separate numbers. We're not, the six isn't inside of the nine. Hmm. Yeah, the, and the context would would dictate what model you're using, I think. Right. Yeah. We've talked about that a lot, just yeah. when you're going to build a number line and, you know, and how important it is to have a task or have a context for each strategy so that the student really can take ownership of it Mm -hmm. some new learning that i've had um recently or i've I've been thinking a lot about what can kids discover and what isn't discoverable and i've been i've been making a list of those things and of course there's some gray area in the middle um but something that i well two things i guess I, i feel like math vocabulary is not something they're going to discover right so i don't have a problem giving that to them i think it's more a matter of when are you giving it to them Again, is there a need to be able to describe this as a mathematician would? Um, and they should have a lot of time to say it in their own informal um, language in a way that makes sense to them first. But I think models, I was, I would, when I was teaching first grade, I was always hoping that my students would discover the bar model or discover the, the number line or that type of thing. And I, I'm, I'm at the place now where I don't believe that models are, are things that kids can discover, but I think that they can discover the important properties of them if that Mm. makes sense Mm -hmm. and it's through contexts that are meaningful to them and it's through them seeing their own strategies and ideas represented through that model where they come to understand what the model is and how it's used and then begin to take it in as as a tool that they want to use on their own so that's kind of like what was happening today in in Hannah's class with the stickers because they were doing the work of breaking this big array up into smaller problems that you could add back together like they 
clearly understood that. And then <laughs> it's actually pretty funny. She call, she texted me. She's like, are you in a PLC? I need you. It's falling apart. <laughs> so I <laughs> ran upstairs and every ta- table I stopped at to talk to them, they, they totally were breaking it apart and figuring out how much was in each piece. They, they knew what they were doing. Um, I think she freaked out because it didn't necessarily match where she wanted it to go in the breaking apart the tens and the ones, but like, let me see if this is what you're saying, that the teacher's job is to then take what they've done and show them the model that kind of represents that, what they were breaking it apart. Well, so I, I appreciate Pam Harris saying that like she, she has turned me on to problem strings and it's something that I have, have used um, for a long time. But I, I like how she describes the, the, the goal of problem strings can be different. And one of those goals can be to develop an understanding of a model. So you're giving them problems to solve. You're representing their strategies and you're focusing your question. You're, you're representing their thinking using the model. Mm-hmm. You're saying, hey, you might not have thought about this as an open area model, but I'm going to just show your strategy that way. So they're describing the strategy. You're drawing it up there. And you're asking questions like, oh, how does this show that strategy? And it's through that process that they will understand how to use an open area model Mm -hmm. without being told, oh, first you do this, then you do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it sounds like the kids in that class have ownership, right? They're they're breaking it apart in ways that make sense to them. Yeah. It was so cool. I think that's something that meant, you know, I'm not saying math teachers, but teachers in general, if there's one way that they have planned to teach this or talk about this and the students start understanding it in a different way, sometimes the teacher has a hard time changing their, you know, their internal model and, and working with the, working with the students. I know that we had trip on the podcast, you know, a while back <laughs> and, you know, you two had had a one way that you want him to think about it. And he was saying a different way and neither of you could understand what he was saying because it wasn't, the, we wasn't even the listening. Way. Yeah. Um, but you know, and that's, but that's, we have been thrown under the bus so many times for that. Yeah. <laughs> Poor trip. Yeah. Wow. This, this. Well, so what's interesting about the, you're describing bl- breaking that, uh, that 18 times 12 apart into tens and ones. Mm-hmm. And a part of uh, my process of relearning multiplication has been like, well, why do I, do I have to always break it apart by tens and ones? Or like, if you're breaking something apart, because if you do the horizontal and the vertical cut by, by place value, you have four things to add up. Right. And just sometimes that's the most efficient way, but I feel like oftentimes it's not. And if you only need to slice it once, why, why slice it twice? That's a really good question. I usually slice it once in a way that fits the other dimension. Does that make sense? No. Like if it was eight times 12, I would slice the eight or 18. I would somehow do it so that it whatever it was went along with the 12 easy in my head 18 by 12 or whatever it was it was 18 by 12 keep going i want to understand your thinking like i would take 18 and i if i take 18 and half that's nine i know it nine times 12 is Mm -hmm. and that would be for me quicker than you know cutting it like he said horizontally and vertically yeah to get tens or, or whatever it was that's a good example I agree. So are you? I, I, oh, I sweet! Know, a visual. I can't see this, but I, <laughs> oh, that kind of looks like mine. Yeah, 
Yeah. His are, his are in the right dimension. Yours, you I got know. the 18 shorter <laughs> than the 12. <laughs> don't, don't throw me under the bus again. You're right. I totally drew that. Anyway. But uh, so where so you changed the problem into nine times twelve. Nine times twelve times two. Isn't that right? Yeah. yeah. Or or nine times twelve plus nine times twelve. Yeah. Right. Right. So it's that's kind of both the distributive property and the associative property, right? Because you broke it up, you, you the you're multiplying parts, <laughs> which is the distributive property, but then you're then. You, you happen to have broken it into two equal parts, which oh, is... Oh, that's true. The two equal parts. It's like you factored the 18 into 9 So and what two. if I did 12 times 6 and 3 times? I think he's saying that would still be the associative because... Oh, because it's still equal parts. It's just... Whereas you parts. did... 12 times 10 and 12 times 8. That would be not the associative property. So what right. you're saying. Gotcha. Okay. Is that what you're saying? Well, uh, I'm not sure what I'm saying, but <laughs> I'm thinking about what, and that's because I'm thinking about what Jay was saying first. Like why I'm, I want to go back to the nine, right? Like why did you, why did you, what drew you to the breaking the 18 into nine? Because and nine. I'm ending up with a two on mm-hmm. the end. First off, I was thinking if I break this in, in half, then to put it back together, I just have to multiply it by two at the end. Instead mm. of another number, because it, it's easier to double in my head than to triple in my head, say. Um, but then I realized after I was saying that the 12 times 9 is not necessarily an easy, as easy for me as 12 times 6 would be. But then I'd have to triple 72, and that may not be as easy for me as doubling uh, 108. 108, yeah. I was thinking 96, but that's times 8. <laughs> <See>? <laughs> well, when, I, when you said 9... That made me think about how close that is to 10. Mm. Which is, which is how, go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, I I, I was just thinking, I I was trying to predict what you were going to do, Jay, and you went in a totally different direction, (laughs) which is good. I mean, that's, that's pushing my thinking, right? I was thinking that you were going to put the, do uh, change the problem from 18 times 12 to nine times 24. Oh. And kind of move. Um, like have and I'm double. imagining a visual um, yeah. that I've learned from Pam Harris and actually Joe Bowler has shared some of this yeah oh, I've seen that before oh gotcha yeah where We've you're taking you're yeah. slicing your array into equal parts and then you're moving it so one side length doubles and the other side length halves um, which can make problems much easier and I feel like if the problem if you're looking at 9 times 24 you're more likely to use different strategies probably, right? Like what would you do for nine times 24? Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I would, I don't like nines at all, really. I don't know why I broke that first one into nines. Um, nine times 24. I guess, I don't know. Maybe I would break the nine to threes. I don't know how. Could would... you do nine times 25? Oh yeah, I was th- I was thinking how to make it close to twenty five. I was like, oh no, it's twenty four. It's not going to be going to a hundred. But yeah, that maybe I could do that and then take away nine. nine. Okay. Was that what you were thinking for nine times twenty four, or did you have something I else? Mean, I I almost never multiply by nine. Yeah, I always I typically multiply uh-huh. by ten and then 
take something away. Because I also don't like multiplying by nine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I went to nine the first time, other than I thought maybe easier so, to the the second step. I was thinking it has so the second you, step. He would do twenty four times ten. Twenty four times ten, and then take away. That's where I was. What are you going to take away? Are you going to take away twenty four? Right, twenty four. Yeah, because yeah. you have mm-hmm. one extra group of twenty four. Mm-hmm. So I have to tell you what the what I saw a group of group of students do. Okay, they had it. They had the this array horizontal or what felt horizontal to me. So the 18 was... On the top. Yeah. And they put the stick down the middle. So then they had... Horizontally? Um, vertically. Vertically, okay. And... Oh, I'm drawing it backwards. Stink. Nope, let me start over. Hold on. <laughs> Got to get this right. We're going to need more scrap paper on the table. (laughs) They had the... Hold on, I have to draw it. Maybe I said that right. No, that's right. Okay, so then they... So then they had nine on one side of... Nine to the right of the stick and nine to the left of the stick, okay? And then the girl put... Drew 12 dots going down beside, like vertically so basically she's making 10 on that side oh so that there's oh, she's one adding she's to the, what's on there. both sides she was adding a column and then and i'm like now what are you gonna do and then she goes 10 20 30 40 all the way to 120 and mm. then she knew immediately what to take out and oh. that's where i was like hannah that's a teacher these people know what the heck is going on you need to <laughs> step out of your like, oh, this isn't working because holy cow, that was amazing. Like yeah. that demonstrates that she's done so much hard work before leading up with small facts that they'd be brave enough to add a row on this huge thing and just whip it out. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was so good. Because <laughs> she didn't want to solve 12 times She doesn't like nines either. Nine. Exactly. She wanted to do 12 yeah. times 10 and yeah. 12 times 10. Yeah. And then take away those two parts. Man, it was cool. And to me, that's that's true fluency, right? That's mm-hmm. using. I mean, I feel like if you if you're solving twelve times eighteen with the standard algorithm, it's going to take you more steps. So, yeah. which is more fluent? Not that it's right. It's not a competition. But for you, if you know that strategy, <laughs> with Tracy, it's a competition. <laughs> <laughs> but if I know that strategy and I use the standard algorithm, then I'm not I'm not living up to my own potential as a mathematician, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love these conversations. Hmm. Hannah doesn't um, listen to podcasts. She tells me anytime I talk about the podcast, I don't like podcasts. She's been on the podcast, but she doesn't like podcasts. She said, I might listen to this one because I told her we were going to talk about her. (laughs) All right. Well, I feel like we could talk all night, but we do want to make sure we wrap it up on time. So did you have, um, is there anything else that we didn't ask you that we, that you wish we did? Yeah. Oh, you know, this, so I don't know if you've seen, but I have these t-shirts um, that I'm selling yeah. and all the, all the proceeds go to raffling off math ed books on Twitter That's awesome. with the hashtag math positive. Okay. So if you haven't checked that out, please do. I'm just released a new one. Um, on the front, it just says 18 times 25. Um, and I, I hope that uh, you can get into conversations with strangers about what that is and the different ways to solve it. Cool. Um, and I have one that's coming out at the end of the month of, of January. Um, that's a collaboration with Nat Banting, who's the fraction 
uh, talk images guy. Okay. And we're going to have a fraction talk image uh, on some shirts as well. So Cool. That is super Check awesome. Have you seen this shirt with all the, the dots on it that he's talking about? I have not. Okay. That's cool. Is 18 times five the one that's in Joe Bowler's book? 18 oh, 25. I think she has something like that. It's This one is 18 times 25. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, we will put a link to those. I'm going to have to say, I'm hoping that you'll like take a picture of those, what you were drawing, because I think it would be fun. It's kind of hard because we can see you, but everyone who's listening can't. So if we could put those in the show notes, like our rough draft work, I think it would be awesome yeah. if you're willing. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> awesome. And I have one final question for you. Okay. Where did you get your theme uh, song music? Where did we get it? It is, um, it is stock music that I... Um, trying to think that one would have been uh premium beat okay cool which is a division I, of shutterstock i ask because it's a very i actually i don't want to give it away there's something really unique about it Ooh. and i feel like i want to challenge ruth to what? She's not a musical <laughs> person i want to challenge ruth to 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 notice and wonder about your intro music and what makes it so mathematically interesting as compared to maybe Berkeley. Songs. <laughs> Is that okay? Can go, I do that? Go yeah, home and sure. ask Mike. That's right. Get Mike to listen to it. No, we'll just to, kidding. We'll so ask, my, ask the question. I'm going to write this question now. What's my homework? I have to listen to the intro music and find the math in it? Yeah. Notice and wonder. And there's something that makes it uh, mathematically distinct from, uh, from most other music. And I'll say there's three core elements of music. Um, it's melody, harmony, and rhythm. And there's one in particular that I'm thinking of, but I won't tell you which one. Melody, harmony, and rhythm. Do you know the answer? I'll, well, I'm going to have to go listen to it That's again. the first thing he's going to do when this is over. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I can promise you. Okay, we have to do... I will say the track is named Easy Math. Wait, that... Oh, wow. That's, that's the name of the track. Wow. What? That's a, it sounds like a, a joke. Yeah, I, you know, and, and that's There's some hard math going on. In there. And that's yeah. why I, I went to it first when I found the name. I was like, well, this one's called math. Let me go listen to it. No way. <laughs> it is. It's called easy math. What? Okay. Wow. So we do need to do takeaways before we yes. hang out. I up, have so. my takeaway. It's homework. Okay. <laughs> so her, her takeaway you are a music person and a math person. Um, Jay, do you have one ready? Um, it's It's long, so we can. You want me to abbreviate it? Oh, because large numbers with Jay. Well, it's, it's, it's extreme numbers this time. Extreme okay. numbers. Yes, Whoa. we want you to go. Go for it. All right. So last time we talked about, was the last time we talked about the, the Voyager satellites or was that one before? Anyway, I don't know. In the past, we've talked about um, the Voyager spacecrafts and how far away they are and how, anyway, and this is space theme, but not because of that. It just so happens I had read somewhere recently about the Hubble Space Telescope and when it went up, it was not working correctly and the mirrors were, I've never heard this before, but they, but they have a conic constant because they are slightly, or it was one mirror, was slightly ground incorrectly or, or whatever. And it was 2.2 micrometers, the curve, it was the ends, the edges were 2.2 micrometers. So no, was it micrometers? I don't know, teeny little thing, okay. whatever it was. And it was off by, you know, just the smallest little amount. And it took the whole thing from like being 70% efficient to 10% efficient. And wow. so they went and fixed it. Anyway, all this to say, I started looking up the James Webb Space Telescope that goes up next year. Yeah. And 
you know, as, as cool as the, the Hubble Space Telescope is, the James Webb Space Telescope goes so far away from Earth because it is an infrared telescope or a lot of infrared tools which deal with heat. And so it has to get far enough away to keep the sun, the Earth, and the moon all behind it at the same time. And it's got this big heat shield that knocks, like, was it, knocks... Um, goes from 185 degrees Fahrenheit on the back side of the shield to the front side of the shield, negative 370 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh. So 50 Kelvin is how cold it's going to be on the other side of that heat shield oh. so that it gets all of the, the, you know, the abstract or the heat pollution out of the way so it can, it can function. But the extreme thing is it is one, let me make sure I get it. One million miles from Earth. It's going to be so far away from Earth, it is like three times further than the moon is. Okay. Like the moon is 250,000 miles. It's a million miles. So it's, you know, three times again further away than the moon is to get it so that it'll stay in orbit and keep the moon and the Earth and the sun to its back all the time. Wow. Wow. That's, I mean, that's tremendously far away. Like, we think going to the moon is crazy, and, and we don't go to the moon anymore. And this is way out past that, just sitting out there taking pictures. <laughs> and to keep it at a steady distance, right? Well, they have to put it there so that it will. And they say this, it's, I can go into a lot of detail, but that specific spot helps to keep it in orbit by itself. It will have mm. to correct some, but that's called one of the Lagrange spots or Lagrange points. And putting it right there the gravity of the earth and the gravity of the sun work together to pretty much keep it in the right orbit. It will have to correct it some with, with little thrusters and such, but it will keep it by itself. We'll keep it there pretty good. That's why it has to be so far away. Wow. Thanks Jay for doing all that research. (laughs) He loves it. I do. That's awesome. Um, Okay, so I guess I should, I should, if you, we're going to give you an opportunity to share yours if you want to, if you have one. I think my takeaway is the when to use a visual that might be teacher prepared. Um, And one of the things I think I heard you say was after the student presents the idea, then showing it to the whole class and Mm -hmm. having the kids draw those connections to what the student said to what they're seeing is a good time to use it. That's my takeaway. Well, and I would, and I would add onto that, that the, one of the best pieces of feedback that I've been given is what happens if you give two still images, maybe a a before and after image and ask students how they're seeing the change from image one to image two. Hmm. That's something that I know Joe Bowler does when she talks about um, case one, case two, case three, like how do you see this growing? And it's the animation that you do in your mind that determines what kind of equation you're going to write. And those are all equal to each other and all this important connections. But I thought that that was great feedback that I received too. let the kids t- describe how they're visualizing it in their brain. Um, and they'll probably end up doing something more sophisticated than what I animated anyway. Yeah, so. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Do you have a takeaway that you want to share? Yeah. So I, I, I find that a lot of the learning process is in trying to describe your own understanding to other people. I think that's another form of practice. Like it's so common to believe that the practice is happening when the kids are actually writing things on on the page alone and silently. <laughs> but this conversation is helpful for me to to kind of 
see where I'm at in my own understanding of the distributive and associative property and see that I still have a long ways to go. So I appreciate you letting me talk it through. Yeah. We hope we can hear more about understanding. it. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to go check out that book too. Yeah. Well, this has been really fun. It has. We really yes. appreciate you joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we, we like to end by saying see you on a run. run. But Tuesday. tomorrow is our day off. So. Yeah. <laughs> Tuesday. Do you run? Monday? We found out you played the piano. Okay. okay. (laughs) Most of our guests are like, no, heck no. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you again. We appreciate it. 